So having a, a few days to um, meet with you in smaller groups and to hear a little bit from the questions that have come up in the question session. Uh, you can uh, know that there's a whole range of experiences that, are, that is happening for you and for us together here on the retreat, all different kinds of uh, mind states and some of the fruits of the practice. Some of the fruits of the practice bring us into experiencing uh, some peace, maybe, some clarity, some uh, more subtle and refined states where we can feel and experience the body in a more subtle way and uh, experience pleasing states of mind, peaceful states of mind, some calm, some clarity. This is some of the fruits of samadhi, of gatheredness, maybe some dropping away of the, the chronic sense of uh, discontent that keeps us agitated and moving from one situation to another, scanning the world around us for somewhere to absorb, maybe some dropping away of that and a sense of contentment and ease. So these are some of the fruits that can arise. There can also be other kinds of fruits that arise from the practice, which is the meeting of the hindrances, experiencing agitation and experiencing doubt and feeling grief or sadness or lostness or loneliness, disconnected, irritation. These kinds of things are also, in a certain way, they're also fruits of the practice. We can think, oh, if these kinds of states come up, we can think, oh, something's going wrong or I'm not practicing well. Uh, But actually we're just coming more into touch with the reality of the mind and the the momentum of our habits that we usually don't uh, give ourselves time to experience because we have such sophisticated mechanisms for distracting ourselves from that which is unpleasant and difficult to be with. So it's not that anything's going wrong if we haven't had a particularly easy time or we've experienced states of mind that, and feelings that have come up that haven't been easy to be with. If something's going right. It means that this is what happens when we practice. You know, it's not always going to be peaceful and calm and stable. We come into touch with the reality of the mind and its various, uh, and the very various phenomena of the mind. Uh, But we can be, you know, very attached and wanting just to have an ideal that we would just like our meditation to be peaceful and using retreats just to try and stay somehow, you know, sort of ward off the world and stay very calm and, and, and in some ways that's useful and that's helpful and that's what we've been focusing on, but in another way it's quite fragile. 
because of course we know as soon as the conditions change and we can't have such a controlled atmosphere where everyone is silent and there's a schedule and we have permission to go more inwardly and then we you know we have less control and then where there's a more impingement from the world around us we know that things get more turbulent and we become can become more easily overwhelmed and agitated and lost and so on so Ajahn Chah used to say uh, sometimes he was amazed at his Western disciples. He used to say, "You use meditation teach uh, meditation retreats sometimes as if you were using a good lawyer. It's like he's just spring you out of trouble and go on retreat, you know." And he said, "But you don't really <laughs> you don't really know what gets you into trouble in the first place. You know, you just know you've gotten into trouble, and you better get." yourself to a retreat, you know, to sort of calm down a bit. He said, it's a bit like you've got a good lawyer that's stashed away that you pull out from time to time. You know, so rather, rather get to know what gets you in trouble so that you can have a practice, as Kitty Sara was saying this morning, or really drawing from Ajahn Chah, that's more even, that you can, we can use, or whatever circumstance arise, arises, So we learn how to practice with whatever situation we find ourselves within. It's all then workable, or whatever mind state that might present itself to us. Or sometimes you would say it's a bit like you you use the samadhi or the gathered practice. And he wasn't saying this to undermine the importance of this aspect of the practice. He says, but you you can use it a bit like you're just uh, staying in the trenches. You never kind of get out the trench. Yeah, I mean, this is a quite martial language because that was the style of the monastic training. You know, he'd, you know, he'd encourage you to, to engage the war <laughs> and to know if in our more gentle um, Western meditation scenes we think of it as a war. Um, that's probably not the language we would use so much, but you know, that was the language a little bit Ajahn Chah would use because it can feel like that. It can feel like a struggle, and certainly the Buddha had those kinds of analogies, quite martial analogies in terms of the practice. That it's, you know, it's not necessarily always a, a walk in the park on a sunny day. It can also be enduring the storms of the mind and, the, and some very, you know, very challenging experiences to, that we're confronted with and can't really move away from. But what the samadhi does, what the strength of some gatheredness does, and what it enables, and, um, and what the retreat form does do, also as Kitty Sa was saying, this context of, of working within limitation, whether it's a sitting, whether it's a day, whether it's the form of the retreat, is we, we get to see that these things change the states of mind that can be so overwhelming to us and that we're so reactive to that they change. Or as one of our, our teachers has also influenced our practice a lot, Master Xinhua, Chinese master, used to say that practice is uh, watching the states turn rather than being turned by the states. 
rather than being turned by the states that come up, the states of mind, rather than being shaped by them and overwhelmed by them, you have the chance with some samadhi, with some gatheredness, to watch the states change, to watch them turn. So in the morning we can feel you know, diff- you know, hopeless, and in the afternoon we can feel pretty good. You know, and then we think, oh, we made it because we feel pretty good. And then the following morning we can feel hopeless again. <laughs> you know, it's very changeable. It's very unpredictable. A peaceful meditation can turn into a, a, a half an hour or th- an hour sitting with some pain or grief. Some lucidity and awakening can turn into a really a dense... Uh, dull uh, f- state, some moment of feeling like I'm going to dedicate my whole life to the path of awakening can turn into how can I get out of here, <laughs> like now. <laughs> so it's very, you know, mind is very fickle, it's very changeable. So getting to so this practice is, is you know, it's, it's this fair-weather practice, not being a fair-weather meditator, is uh, not to, to realize, not just about learning to, to try and cultivate peaceful states, although this is a very important aspect of the practice, and we can do this. You know, actually, in some ways, it doesn't take a lot. It takes a lot to sustain peaceful states, but we can even with some mindfulness, some focus, some being with the breath and body, we can start to feel some more stability, some gatheredness. Yeah, so there's one dimension, but this has to be married with some wisdom, some understanding, some capacity to really be with and contemplate the states of mind, the feelings, the suffering that can come up and will come up, the challenges that we're going to meet. Otherwise, as Ajahn Chah said, we just stay in the trenches and we never can, can really take our practice into the world. We can never really, you know, we, or he would say we've just become frightened of contact with the world. As the Buddha's awakening, when he describes the quality of awakening, he describes it as a heart the jitta, the heart that is in touch with the world but not shaken by the world. Liberated heart. So it's not in a state of fear of the world but a state of fully knowing the world. And we know the world through knowing the mind. The mind and the world really are a reflection of each other. In the, you know, in the night of the Buddha's awakening, it said just before his awakening that um, he was sitting under the Bodhi tree. And of course, this was after a huge struggle you know, where he had tried every pathway possible um, to bring about his uh, his resolution of his profound question, which was, is there anything that transcends death? Is it just that we're here to experience a few things and then we die and that's it? 
in this world of impermanence where everything is touched by death, where everything is, is ruled by the law of, of mortality? Is there anything that, that isn't touched by death? This was his question, his quest. And he pursued his quest to, to resolution where he actually realized, recognized what's called the amata dharma, the changeless or the deathless dharma. There is that which is not touched by death, which is unborn, unoriginated, which is profoundly peaceful, which is immovable, which is tata, which is such. And then he proceeded to, to teach from that place and to point to that realization through his 40 years of trying to communicate the Dharma, which he knew would be difficult to do. How can you communicate that which is beyond language? But nevertheless, he did. But the night of his enlightenment, the night of his before his full awakening and his insight matured, it said he was sitting under the Bodhi tree and all of these forces came to visit, all of the things that would undermine his awakening. The sort of Hasetan, the, the Mara, the Tempta, everything that would wobble him. You know, the voices of sabotage, who do you think you are? You know, you're nobody. Or the, the longing for home and for security and for comfort. Or, that, or the, the temptations of desires or power or glory or the feelings of failure. It was said that Amara arrayed his forces before the Buddha to try and... Because there was... You know, the nearer you get to the light, the fiercer the resistance can come. You know, the stronger the opposition... So that one shouldn't be too naive about these dynamics. (laughs) It's just all peace and light. It's not necessarily the case. So the the you know that moment because there was going to be this tremendous breakthrough, this breakthrough of the veil of ignorance, which keeps the human consciousness um, constricted in a state of suffering and a lack of enlightenment, because there's going to be this, this tremendous force from the awakened mind, which we're still benefiting from in, in this moment, there was an equal and opposite force to try and stop that, the force of Mara. And, you know, it's just Mara, it's, uh, our friend Ajahn Sajitra would say, Mara really works for his living. <laughs> He's pretty busy and pretty sophisticated and, you know, knows how to pull out the cards to undermine and to delude and to confuse human beings. So they forget their awakened nature and get caught up in suffering and delusion. So this is what the Buddha was, was up against in, in a certain way. The Buddha's life is a metaphor for our journey. You know, it's, it's our journey too this way of awakening and the things that the Buddha met, we will meet and we do meet, perhaps not such a huge scale, <laughs> but still, you know, we meet, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's our human journey. 
So, you know, here he was just before his awakening with all of this undermining, this opening which would, would have had such a dramatic impact. And the Buddha just simply said, instead of sort of going to, uh, you know, try and eradicate all of the, that which is difficult, trying to kill Mara, he just said, I know you, Mara. I know you. I know. I know you. I know what you are. I know these energies. I know these sabotaging voices. I know these temptations. Because he had, he got to, he had, he knew the mind so well. He knew these forces so well. So this is, this is, uh, and in that moment when the the Buddha said to Mara, "I know you," it said that Mara, said, "Oh no, the Buddha knows me," and slunk away. <laughs> he lost his power, just like that. Power is gone to delude and to overwhelm and to scare. So this is a this is a great teaching for us because when we meet those things that wobble us, that overwhelm us, that sabotage us, that undermine us, they will come to visit in all sorts of ways, and this is part of our practice. And then our practice is, is to have enough steadiness, enough mindfulness, enough presence to withstand whatever visits, and then to enhance that steadiness with investigation. What's called Dhamma Vijaya. To look into the nature of Dhammas, to look into the nature of phenomena, to look into the nature of our experience through the eye of Dhamma, through the eye of seeing, through the eye of investigation. What is this? And in that way, to have this capacity for knowing. This is the fundamental buddhi, the awakened aspect of the mind, here and now, is this capacity for knowing. Knowing how it is. Knowing, like for us on this retreat, many of you have spoken about the different kinds of hindrances that have come to visit. And when they come to visit, we can think, oh no, I'm terrible. <laughs> you know, I'm a hopeless case. I can't meditate. But actually, this is exactly the things that we need to know very well. You know, the force of the first great hindrance. The Buddha made an analogy. So when you see these hindrances, it's a bit like you're looking, in a, looking for your reflection looking at your reflection in a bowl of water, but you can't see your reflection because that bowl of water in the first hindrance is, is, is um, whipped up. It's um, tr- colored. Oh, it's colored? Oh, it's colored. Oh, right. So that first hindrance, it's got dye in it. It's colored. So you can't see the first, this... Sense called kamachanda means that the mind is constantly scanning for some sensory experience to absorb into. 
the mind not really knowing its true nature, its true root, not really knowing its true home. We don't know our home. We don't know our true root, our true resting place, our refuge. And so there's this constant scanning. There's this constant looking for something to absorb into through, primarily through our sensory experience. Through our thinking, through our seeing and hearing and tasting. And this is, you know, this is why it's this, these retreat forms are very useful because after we've read the notice board 3,000 times and after we've looked at all the jars and, and, we looked <laughs> and after we've done a few walks, you know, it's like there's nothing left. You know, and then after we've sort of remembered all the books we've read and the movies we've done, you know, it's, it's very difficult because, you know, we, when we're in our everyday life, we don't notice this happening because we just follow the mind. You know, it's constantly shifting and moving from one object to another, absorbing into through, you know, one sort of experience after another. And it's, it's very, very hard to go cold turkey on that. You know, you get, it's, it's, it's a... It's a hard sort of plateau. And so this is why you need to give the mind something to work with. You know, work, working with the breath, training the mind, it, it starts to engage. It needs something to work with, you know, to, to replace, to begin to replace this obsessive tendency for the mind to keep looking for something else. It's always looking, isn't it? This nature of kamatana, this desire. It's not a bad energy once we become awakened to it. It's not that the energy is bad. It's the unconscious, unconsciously being driven by that energy that creates this agitation. When we're conscious of the energy, then it's something else. It becomes something else. Doesn't, you know, it's not the master so much. It becomes an energy that has its place and its use. But if you notice desire, always moving to the next thing, always, you know, that's the illusion of it. It'd be better if in this other place or this other retreat or in this other situation or these other people or in this other country. And it, and it just goes on and on. <laughs> and, it get, and you think you satiate that, then it will stop, but it actually inflames it even more. And so you can never get to the end of desire. And that's part of the delusion of it. You never, ever get there. All this, so there's a lot of that that can come up. And it's very powerful and it's very agitating and it can be very deluding. And then it's complete contrary and opposite is when the mind is caught in the state of aversion. And often they work together. We don't want to be here. Ajahn Chah used to just very, in his very simple way, just say the wanting and the not wanting of the mind. We don't want what's here. We want something that's not here. We don't want the painful knee. We don't want, you know, um, the sounds that are around us. We don't want 
to be where we are. We want something else. We want a peaceful state of mind. Or we want a perfect retreat. Or perfect teachings. We don't want conflict. We want harmony. <laughs> it's natural. It's nothing actually. These are quite, in a certain way, it's innocent. But if we're not awakened to these energies, we're constantly caught in this, this uh, agitation and irritation and resistance to how it is. We cannot really come into relationship with the reality of life because we're always resisting what it is. Or as a story that we've told quite often when Ajahn Chah visited one of the Western monks when he was in hospital and complaining and upset about his state. He didn't want to be in the situation he was in and saying to Ajahn Chah, it shouldn't be like this, it shouldn't be like this. And Ajahn Chah leant over him and said, well, if it shouldn't be like this, it wouldn't be like this. <laughs> you know, there's so much, you know, we about life, about ourselves, about other people, about the world that we know it shouldn't be like this. And it really shouldn't, and we should work to make it, make it not what it is. <laughs> but even if we do everything we can and knock ourselves out to make it what it shouldn't be, it's still going to be what it is to some degree, because this is the nature of samsara. This is the nature of the world that we're in. It's, uh, it's not heaven. We didn't get born in heaven, if you've noticed. We got, we got born into a place where there's quite a lot of suffering, quite a lot of injustice and actually horrific things. Beautiful things, but horrific things. And this is how it is. So there's not, again, the energy in itself, and each of these energies can have something within them that can have important things for us to decant and to learn, and maybe even some wisdom and some understanding that can grow if we contemplate these energies, but when we're not conscious of desire and aversion, they just operate, they just, we just program by, by them. And we think the problem, we constantly feel the problem is someone else or the situation we're in or So to, to be able to um, recognize moments of, you know, with this Dhamma Vijaya or Vipassana, looking into, to investigate in the, in the foundations of mindfulness, as the Buddha develops the training of the foundations of mindfulness, we start with the breath and we start with the body. I say start with actually breath and body, it's the core you stay with the breath and stay with the body, and of course we're going to meet how these mind states affect the body. Is this feeling connected with these states of mind? Is it pleasant? Is it unpleasant? You know, to know this is an unpleasant feeling, aversion, rather than, oh, I'm feeling averse and I'm a terrible person and I shouldn't be so irritable and I shouldn't hate people. <laughs> I should be loving and spiritual. (laughs) 
when in fact I'm full of anger. <laughs> you know, it's this the dispassionate way that the teaching encourages just to notice is this pleasant or unpleasant? No, it's an unpleasant feeling. You know, is the mind colored by lust or hate? Yes, it's colored by greed or lust or hate. And so in some ways, the first step of being able to investigate is just being able to notice this knowing what is actually present, what has visited us. And actually, the problem so much isn't the visitor often, it's our reactivity to the visitor. We don't want it to be how it is. It shouldn't be like this. But Ajahn Chah used to say that these things that come to test us or these things we don't really want to be with, he said they're like sharpening stones for our wisdom. I don't really want so many sharpening stones in my life, but you know we can't avoid them. But what we can do is when they come is to shift our attitude. And I'm thinking, oh, something's gone really wrong. But realizing this is a fruit of practice. This is an opportunity to actually meet this challenge and to grow through it rather than stay in the trenches. So that we, you know, when we start to meet, you know, it's not only our desire and aversion, we're meeting it in the world around us as well. You know, and it's very, the world is, as the Buddha would say, the world is burning, the desire and aversion. And it's literally burning now <laughs> because we've got to the end of desire, I don't know what else we can consume. We've nearly consumed everything. And, you know, it's led us to a a world that's burning up. So, you know, to be able to have the courage, you know, and to not fear the suffering, not to fear the difficulties that arise, but to realize that it's an opportunity to grow through and to have the courage to meet the challenges to the point where things that would have once at one point really wobbled us and overwhelmed us, a critical word, some aversion directed towards us, a loss of a job, a collapsed bank account, you know, these things that will come to test us. Rather than being completely thrown and devastated, there may be some capacity to have gained enough strength and willingness to investigate and to explore in a way that will help us grow through the challenges and become stronger and more fearless and more able to meet the experience of being touched by the worldly conditions which we have sometimes no control of and to be touched by our own mind in its craziness and its madness and its despair and its loneliness and its longings without being devastated. The desire and aversion and then, you know, also been plenty of restlessness and dullness <laughs> to go around. <laughs> and it's again in these containers of 
of these retreat places and the, the schedule of the day, sometimes when mind can go can become so restless, so agitated. Uh, and this is this isn't an easy energy to be with. You know, just sometimes it'd be very coarse. You just want to do something, get away, and can't really sit. It's like you're sitting on an anthill. And other times it can just be a sort of a subtler agitation of the mind. It's similar, you know, they're all connected. It's similar to desire, but it's, it's a, it can be a real bodily restlessness and it, or a mental agitation. Restlessness and worry and agitation. Just like a sort of a, a resonance, an energetic resonance, a habit almost that throws us off center, robs us of our ability to have any peace or contentment or stability. And it's, and it's converse energy of dullness when we, it's not just dullness and sleepiness, but it's a sort of, a, again, a, a deeper sense of sometimes just really not wanting to be here. The mind just goes like a blob. Really, and that can we can really feel that in the body as well. Real resistance to just getting out of bed, just appearing, just sitting here, and and sometimes it can be such a heavy feeling around that. And sometimes it can go into sleepiness, and sometimes it can just be this sort of dread or this heaviness. It's very hard to tolerate these states. But if we're learning to uh, to meet them, as we learn, as the Buddha did, I know you, and not only do I know you, but I'm going to investigate <laughs> and explore rather than be overwhelmed, then actually some of the power of these states to completely rob us of any well-being starts to diminish. It can become actually quite interesting to explore what is actually happening here. And then the, the fifth or in the last, and say there are many, many things that can come to hinder, many variations of, on these themes, on these energies, but these are just the classical ones. The first one, the bowl of water is full of dye, desire. The second one, the bowl of water, the aversion is like it's boiling away. These are just analogies for the mind. And the third one, the dullness, it's like, the bowl of water has got a slime on it. You can't really see clearly. And the fourth one, the restlessness, it's like the bowl of water is whipped up, like waves that are running across it. You can't see, the mind can't see its own pure reflection, its own brilliance, its own luminosity, its own awareness. It just sees all the time these states. And then this last one of uh, where the bowl of water is like mud. <laughs> it's a state of doubt or the state of uh, sort of obsessive thinking. This really doubt is a very interesting one and a very tricky state to work with. And very sabotaging in a certain way. And in some ways, it's, it's a, this is the doubt. It's a little, this is a little different than the, than the doubt that has, is mixed with skillful inquiry, which is a more positive and um, 
energizing state and aspect and the faculty of enlightenment actually Dhammavijaya is one of the important faculties to develop for inquiry which has some kind of a positive use of doubt what's going on here and that can be really honed and used in meditation but this the doubt that's the hindrance is more the saboteur kind of energy it's that which really you know you start to sit and you committed yourself to a retreat and you've come here and then the mind will go well maybe I'm not really a Buddhist meditator maybe I'm something else you know maybe I should be doing a Christian prayer or Maybe I should be doing Sufi Zika, or maybe I should be, you know, visualizing my chakras, or maybe I should be, you know, and and maybe you should, but that's not the point in the moment. The point is, can you know the mind when it's in a state of doubt? Or is this, you know, is this really working? Or am I really, you know, am I any good? Or can I really do this? I mean, life is a doubtful thing. No wonder we experience a lot of doubt. And it can be really undermining. Uh, But to have a moment that can just... And then we, you know, when there's a doubt that comes up, often what we do is we just try and think our way to certainty. If I think enough, I'll get to the answer. (laughs) So it's really doubt's very much connected with the faculty of the cognitive faculty and a a strong reliance on that, which is to some degree (laughs) will give us some answers and some sense of framing of life and framing of ourselves and understanding but it really will sell us short ultimately because however brilliant the cognitive mind is it can't really capture reality you know, so one has to have some kind of working relationship from a place of investigation and mindfulness and awareness to thought itself to start to really see through this sabotaging level of doubt and to realize that you know reliance on thought as a way of describing who we are and what the world is is a is a fragile refuge so to have moments when doubt arises particularly if it's really crippling and constricting of us and undermining whether it's about self-doubt and who you are or whether it's doubt about what you're trying to do that's positive actually and wholesome. There's nothing unwholesome about cultivating mindfulness and presence. To be able to just have a moment of saying, this is like the Buddha, I know you, this is doubt. And knowing this is doubt is very different than being doubtful, caught up in doubt. It starts to give you some space then to investigate What is, what is doubt? What is happening here? And this is the, the second complementary aspect of the training of meditation with samadhi, samatha calming and samadhi gatheredness is this vipassana, this investigation, this seeing into the nature of things, seeing more deeply, looking more deeply. Ajahn Chah used to say it's a bit like he made these different analogies that are actually quite helpful. He said, the summer to meditation, 
the calming meditations that we've been doing with the breath and the focusing, the not now, putting things to one side for the sake of this gathering. He says it's a bit like building a candle. You have a really good candle. But it's no good just having a candle. You've got to light the thing. (laughs) At some point, you've got to light it to see what's going on in the room so you don't keep stumbling around. You know, but if you're just trying to light a candle, but you don't have any wax, you don't have, then you haven't got enough light to hold a steady, enough steadiness to investigate what you're trying to look at. You start to investigate, and then you just get swept away by the state of mind, by the feeling, by the memory, by the hindrance. So both working together. Or he said it's a bit like a knife you want to really cut through and look into the nature of what you're exploring. He says it's a bit like you you can't just have a blade, you've got to have the back of the knife, it has to have some strength. And so the back of the knife is this samatha, samadhi, it's this coming again and again to the object of our meditation, the breath, body, sound, whatever we're using to help steady. And then within that sphere of our awareness, exploring when, particularly when the mind is touched by phenomena, by hindrance, by sensory experience, by agitation, by suffering, to be able to, rather than stay in the trench and hope it will go away (laughs) one day, which it will, it will change, but it will come back again. is to have some courage to begin to be willing to be disturbed. You know, because we're not willing to be disturbed, life will disturb us anyway. You know, so, so, so not to be the meditator that uses meditation, like Ajahn Charles said, we use with our, our lawyer, just to try and ward off life forever. It is good sometimes to be able to say not now and put things down, but at some point we also have to say, okay, now let's just look at this. Let's just be with this. Let's just be with what is agitating, but with some strength and some capacity because the mind that has some samadhi, turning that mind to investigate is very different than the mind's just reactive and overwhelmed and colored, like this bowls of water colored by the states that come to visit. So being able to, in the next uh, while in the retreat, we're beginning to hone and, and look into our experience more fully. So the Buddha gave us some guidelines in this uh, training of mindfulness for example, saying, what is this nature of the body? We've been working with, with the body. We've been working with the breath. And breath and body as that which can help steady the mind. And then as the mind steadies on the slower rhythm of the body and the luminosity and the awareness of the mind start to, starts to suffuse the body, there's some kind of gatheredness. But we can also begin to notice as we're contemplating the body and the breath that the body and the breath is in a state of change. So this is the beginning of some wisdom. We notice the breath is always changing. 
notice the body, when we have, we have an idea, an external sense of the body, when we look in the mirror and we say, oh, that's me. But then when we look through the eye of vipassana or investigation on the internal experience of the body, and the Buddha recommended to, in the foundations of mindfulness, to explore this body not only in terms of its external appearance, which we can have all sorts of reactions about, our body and other, other people's bodies, <laughs> you know, is to actually explore the internally. So he's exploring the body in terms of the elements. You know, the body's made up of elements, heat, liquidity, earth, air, space. So we can contemplate that. The body's made up of what's called the internal um, organs and the interiority of the body, what's underneath the skin of the body not so pleasant <laughs> you know and, and and as we can we can actually contemplate that in one of the charming chants that we used to do every morning in the monastery was recite the 32 parts of the body <laughs> hair of the head hair of the na- hair of the body nails teeth skin spleen urine feces blood yes it wakes you up very nicely <laughs> gets you going in a positive way as a monastic training <laughs> but you know it's a, it's a training in realism you know, to explore the internal aspects of the body and it begins you know you could so go oh, that, yuck that's horrible but the idea is to begin to have a little bit more dispassion a little bit less fixated on our identification with, our, with the body the external appearance and say, well, you know, we, we can look at all of our faces and we get all the differences between us. But if we looked at all our livers or, <laughs> you know, or a cup of blood from each of us, we would get the sameness of all of us and all beings. You know, and then you look even further in the first foundation of mindfulness, the Buddha goes even further and starts to encourage you to look at the body in the state of decay, the bones and the skeletal structure and then the charnel ground as the body breaks down and goes to dust. I remember once when um, Kitty Sara and I, we did this pilgrimage to Mount Kailash which I just about managed to survive. <laughs> and we, we landed up at one of these sky burials in Tibet. They haven't really got enough wood to do cremations and the earth is so frozen, it's hard to dig to do burials. So they have these sky burials where they um, take the corpse and, and it's a very earthy place and, you know, in a very sort of, um, not only earthy, but I wasn't going to use the word poor because it's very rich in a very many ways, but the, but people are living very simply. Um, and there's not a lot prettied up. It just is, life is just what it is. And so the corpse is brought to the 
to the um, burial ground. And it's not actually literally burial, but for the sky burial ground. And it's wrapped up in a bundle and then carried three times around the edge of the sky burial as if uh, three times is the traditional number as if honoring the Buddha, Dharma and Sangha. And then the corpse is taken into the, the, the area where the burial will happen and then um, pulled out and then there is the, the, these uh, people that are doing the burial start to dismember the corpse. It's, it's quite a very powerful thing to observe. And meanwhile, off to the side are these huge vultures waiting to feed on the corpse. And this is the manner of, of disposing of bodies in this culture where they can't burn and they can't bury. And then there's one of the people involved in this, doing this whole process that's got a flag running up and down in front of the vultures trying to keep them at bay because they're like hopping. And, and meanwhile, these other guys are, are slicing the body up and then start, they start to crush the bones and mix, they mix it with a zampa. To, uh, to, so that the birds will eat it. So you're standing there watching what was a human body just becoming these dismembered parts. And at a certain point, they can't keep the vultures away anymore because they get, they get, you know, there's loads of them. And the guy literally has to just jump out the way and the vultures just come swooping in. And all you see are the feathers and movement. And, and then the next thing, the vultures clear, there's nothing left. So what was a body has now become a vulture. And what was a vulture will become back to the earth. And you get a very visceral and visual sense of the interconnectedness of life. And it breaks down, it really breaks down this sense of our independent sort of citadel kind of mentality of just, you know, be you know the way that we view ourselves as this body and this as this sort of permanent, strong, independent thing that, that you know we, we go around and the world is out there somehow. You suddenly get this whole perceptual shift where you just see everything's feeding on everything else and breaking down into everything else, and it's just one huge cycle. You know, and then you just, and this is what the Buddha was saying in Vipassana and insight. We just keep exploring and looking and looking at what is going on here. What we assume to be permanent, what we assume to be ourselves, isn't quite what it seems to be. And in our assumptions, when we make these false assumptions, we don't really understand the deeper nature of reality, the Dharma, then it leads us to suffering and grasping and agitation. So Ajahn Chah used to say, he said, you know, if you want to know why you suffer, it's because you're looking for certainty where there is, in, there is no certainty. We look for certainty in the uncertain. We look for certainty in the wrong place. 
And this is a hard reality, of course. Otherwise, if it wasn't, we would get it just like that. <laughs> and therefore, we, we suffer. So in, in this insight meditation, supported by samadhi, supported by our gatheredness, we're beginning to become more realistic, beginning to take courage to explore these realities of life, to explore, not theoretically, but in the moment of touching our experience of body and mind and heart, this body, mind and heart, our body, mind and heart. And as we understand the nature of our body, mind and heart, we can begin, as Ajahn Chah would say, to understand the nature of the world, the world that we're living within. And in doing so, we begin to, we can begin to see rather than taking things so personally, these states of mind, these hindrances, we can begin to see it's Dhamma, it's nature, it's just doing its thing. It's not such a personal possession. In that mind, then that moment, the mind can free itself from its identification, just contemplate this world and the states of mind and our experience as Dhamma, whether good or whether bad, whether happy or whether sad, whether alive or whether dead, all the polarities, all the experiences are part of the natural world unfolding according to its own nature. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.